All right, here's the deal. This episode goes a little bit long because I was speaking with two of the most fascinating people on planet Earth. So I'm going to cut this intro really short. I'm going to skip over the typical comedic caca that you're used to and get you right into the show. I apologize for saying caca, of course. That's unprofessional. But enjoy the show. I had a great time. I hope you do too. See you later. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bad Science. This is your host, Ethan Edinburgh. This is the show where we analyze the science of a movie with a comedian and a scientist. And today, it's actually a TV show. So don't freak out. Just relax. Everything's fine. It's the same as the regular show, except it's a TV show. It's HBO's Westworld. And we're talking about it today with two real-life superheroes. I am beyond excited about it. First, he's an internationally renowned improvisational comedian musician. You might know from his groundbreaking live specials or as the band leader on The Late Late Show with James Corden, it's the legendary Reggie Watts. Hi. Reggie. Hey. What's up? Uh, (laughs) Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. I have plenty of questions that are just for you, but before we get there, I have to introduce our second guest. Is that okay? Are you kidding? I can't wait. Okay, fantastic. Me neither. Let's not wait anymore then, right? Let's just do it. Okay. Okay, fine. So he's a neuroscientist at Stanford, and he heads the Center for Science and Law and is a New York Times bestselling author of eight books. And most importantly, for our purposes today, he's a science advisor on Westworld. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome him, David Eagleman. Hey, guys. Great to be here. Yeah. How's it going, David? Good. You know, in quarantine, but otherwise hanging in there. Yes, of course. Trapped, but for the safety of others. Yes. Trapping yourself. Um, Usually that would sound like a threat, like saying that you're a dangerous guy, but that's not the case with the virus. No, no. David, nice. (laughs) David, good guy. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I should mention, we should just get into this first, I guess. You actually know he's a good guy. From your meeting in person where there was some sort of Brian Eno performance in Australia. Can you tell us what happened here, David? Yeah, I, I wrote a book of fiction years ago called Sum, S-U-M, and Brian Eno turned it into an opera at the Sydney Opera House. And so I flew out to Sydney to be a part of that. And that's where I met Reggie. Yep. Unbelievable. Were you more excited about Brian Eno making an opera out of your book or to meet Reggie? Definitely the 10 seconds of meeting Reggie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Nice. <laughs> you know, I mean, the amount of times that he's made an opera for a book, it's like, who cares at this point? You know what I mean? Yeah. Get over yourself. Yeah, he's a, this a, I think that would have been his 35th at that point. So It's like after the 17th, what's the point anymore? Book, yeah. book, book, music, music. Yeah. I know, but yeah, book, 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 book <laughs> music, opera, book. <laughs> Jesus. I know. Get over it. I know. It's just enough. Um, So wait, I also wanted to mention, Reggie, you've done the podcast twice. You've done two episodes. Both of them were about different Star Wars films. And yet, we have never discussed that you had a small role. You were a voice in 2019's Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Is that correct? That is correct. I don't know how we missed that. Uh, I guess that's my fault. But what was what is the deal there? What were you the voice of? I was the voice of Kusam Pang Glaklaf from the Seventh Sector. No, I was uh, I was the voice of uh, <laughs> I, uh, of uh, I knew that was going to be fake. <laughs> How'd you know? Um, I I was the voice of uh, Lando Calrissian. Wow! Wow! Yeah, of Holy when crap. he when he's in his mask. 
like when you first before Billy D. Williams comes out as like the actual Lando Calrissian, but when he's in his mask with like the you know the voice changer thing or whatever, that's me saying like follow me and then giving a command oh to God. a driver and the weird tank mobile <laughs> thing going like umpando cocho, you know, or something like that, and then the guy takes off. Yeah, damn, that must have been <laughs> exhilarating. It was it was really weird. <laughs> it was like because I was sitting on my couch. It sounds really stupid, but it's true. I was texting J.J. Abrams and I said, "Hey man, I miss you." Let's hang out sometime. And then he texts back like, yeah, man, I'm in the middle of editing, trying to finish this this movie. This is crazy. So maybe after, you know, January or whatever, I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Understandable. And then a half hour later, he goes, hey, do you want to do a voice? <laughs> and I'm like, I, uh, yeah, sure. And he's like, can you get to the studio in an hour? And I was like, yeah. And so I drove to the studio. I uh, wow. went, found the studio, went into the studio, uh, talked to him for a little bit and then he yeah and then he directed me in one of those like giant editing rooms that has a huge movie screen in it you know so they can oh, do all the sound mixing for the dolby atmos and then long story short he yeah he directed me i did the thing and then it survived um to the movie so that was pretty crazy yeah that's unbelievable and i know you're such a star wars fan so it just must have been like pretty out of body moment there yeah it's it's strange like you know when you, one minute you're 10 years old playing with action figures, you know, in the, in the dirt and like some kid brings over a scout walker and you're like, no way you have the scout walker, you know? And then, uh, <laughs> and, then and then you flash forward to now it's, and having a voice in a star Wars movie. It's just insane. It's crazy. Yeah. And just such a bummer that you always had to play in the dirt. Yeah. But anyways, we no. don't have time to get into it. Huge um, Allison Chains uh, fan. I, I, Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an honor. Actually. Yeah. Um, so, David, you, I, I was uh, doing some research this morning. You co-founded a company called Neosensory. Yeah. I had never heard of this kind of thing before and it was just mind blown by it. So can you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I'm a neuroscientist and I've been interested for a long time in this issue about how the brain is locked in silence and darkness. And all it ever gets are electrochemical signals, you know, little spikes from the eyes or the ears or the fingertips. And it doesn't actually look different, the spikes that you get from the fingertips or the eyes or the ears. And like, it, it all looks the same on the inside. So hmm. that's led to this new field called sensory substitution, which is the question of can you feed information into the brain via an unusual channel? And so... Um, I got interested in whether we could build sensory substitution for people who are deaf. And so we built originally a, a vest that someone wears and the vest has little vibratory motors all over it, like the little buzzer on your cell phone. And the vest captures sound and turns it into patterns of vibration on your skin. And uh, people can come to understand the auditory world that way because the information goes and gets to their brain. And so then I, I gave a talk at TED and immediately after the talk got funded by VCs. And I was so surprised by this because I had never planned on doing a business. Um, but that, that launched this business. And then uh, we now we make a, a wristband. We shrunk it down to wristband size. And so people all over the world who are deaf or have hearing loss of any sort by this wristband and they can hear what's going on around them that way through their skin. Yeah, this was so phenomenal, uh, almost making me like 
teary-eyed. I've, I've always been interested in ways to help as a music guy, sound guy. And yeah, there's like these little, there's like four, if I'm not mistaken, like vibrating uh, sensors on this watch. And somehow that's able to translate the world around them. They can tell like if uh, water is running or if there's like a cup in front of them, right? Um, th- th- well, yeah, any kind of sound, water running, someone calling her name, a door slam, a dog bark, a baby cry, any of this stuff somebody talking. And it's because this is actually all the inner ear does is just take sound waves from the air and convert them into patterns of spikes that go to your brain. It's all your ear is doing. So I'm essentially just transferring the ear to the skin. And it does it from there. And bridging it a little bit to Westworld, they used one of those first prototypes. Um, I mean, I assume was a first prototype, the vest that I saw on the on the TED Talk in the show, right? Yeah, exactly. So, right. So I happened to have my vest with me when I was talking with the writer's room and the producers and creators of Westworld. And so I showed them the vest and they said, wow, we really want to work this into the show. So... In season two, when uh, when everything's gone bad, um, I don't want to give away any spoilers if someone hasn't caught up yet, but uh, things go bad with the, with the hosts, the robots there, and you have this private military commanders who drop in, and uh, so they wear the vest, and with the vest, they can feel the location of the robots. They can feel where they are mm. around them, like, oh, there's one behind me, there's one off to the left, there's one 200 yards up the right. Um, so you're just translating spatial information into a feeling on the skin, and then they can go about trying to... Uh, take care of the robots that way. That was written in because you were just hanging out with the vest. This sounds yeah. very similar to the J.J. Abrams story where it's like these Hollywood people seem very lazy. <laughs> like they're just, they're just, you're just hanging out there. They're like, oh yeah, let's put that in the script. <laughs> I think this is probably what? how how pretty much everything in life happens though, right? Yeah, that's who you know. Not just I, in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just yeah, it's just being in the right spot when something is happening. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, definitely uh, check out the neosensory. I thought that was just absolutely amazing. Um, and and speaking of TED talks, obviously Reggie, you have a TED talk that is absolutely unbelievable as well. Uh, I recommend everybody to to go watch it. Show it to the people that you love. That's how they they'll know that you love them. And Reg, it reminded me. I, I was checking it out a little bit today. I've, obviously, I've seen it before, but first off. Did they ask you to perform or did they actually want you to give a TED Talk and you were like, no, sorry, I do ephemeral loop beats and improvised accents and that's it? Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. I mean, that's what they were looking for. That was a specific category they were looking for. And they're like, well, he'll do. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, of course. I, I had been, um, I, I had, I'd been doing like a, a bunch of different sorts of tech innovation conference like events like there was pop tech that did a few times which is takes place in camden maine mm-hmm. and then yeah and then ted x's like just like a bunch of a bunch of those like three or four, four of those so i had kind of had a little bit of a track record and because of these conventions like you see a lot of repeat people right like people who uh, speak at one speak at another and you start to recognize people uh in the circuit kind of yeah david Dave, Dave, you know, you're one of them. Um, but like, yeah, so so that that world is kind of pretty closely. Actually, that's where I met Brian Eno. I met Brian Eno at PopTech. So um, oh. we were both, he was uh, he was talking with Will Wright because Will Wright just released Spore, the uh, gener- generative game, uh, evolutionary game. And then Brian Eno did all of the 
music for it. So they were talking about generative mm. music and he, and all of his artwork is generative, like the 77 million paintings, so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, so I had been doing a few of those. And so I was kind of like around, you know, those people. And I was always trying to figure out how can I get, how can I do the, the, I don't want to say get in trouble by saying the real Ted, but like, you know, the official <laughs> Ted that doesn't have an X after. Yeah. Um, big one, the Super Bowl of Ted. Yeah, the Super Ted. <laughs> I want to do the Super Ted, yeah. the Hyper Ted, and and yeah, and and it was just kind of it was hard to you know hard to figure out how to get in there. And I think they knew that I wanted to, but blah blah blah. But so they they had this one year they changed it up and they did this thing called Ted Full Spectrum, and they allowed people to essentially audition, but it was a show as well. So uh, yeah, that's how I, that's how I did it, and yeah, so I got to do that in that way, and it was an amazing experience. Yeah, it's uh, an amazing outcome. And, you know, I've seen you, I don't know how many times, and I'm fascinated by the fact that you don't break. I don't know if maybe David can explain what in the brain <laughs> is able to focus in like that. Because, you know, when we're talking here, we're, we're just hanging, you're, you're free to laugh, it's no problem. And then you're doing like some of the funniest shit ever. And you're just, uh, I don't know what it is. You got blinders on or something and you never break. What is that about? I don't know. David would know. I, (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I don't know. But my guess is that when you are performing, things wouldn't strike you as funny in the same way because you are performing. You know what you're doing. You see what's coming. So the, I mean, part of humor is surprise and you're not necessarily surprised by what comes out of your mouth because you've been, you know, planning that for somewhere between three and thirty seconds for that to come out of your mouth. Like yeah, assumption. Yeah, yeah. That that actually does that. That says a lot. That that is true. I mean, it's. I mean, you know, with improvisation too, you're kind of doing a double duty. You know, it'd be different if I had uh, written material because a lot of comedians, obviously, if they've done their com- their their routine a few times and they've done their jokes a few times, they really know what's what's coming yeah create their demeanor but when you're improvising it's kind of like you're, you're processing on a couple different levels so you kind of have to you, you just have to keep going you know i mean there's definitely like if i'm doing a long show there's moments where sometimes i lose it because like what i'm doing is so fucking stupid that i'm that i'm like this is so stupid like in it's, real time and then i it's I lose so it. rare though it's it seems like most of the time you're i don't know it's like I mean, you're definitely aware of what you're doing, and yet it doesn't stop your progress. It's it's truly remarkable, because I find myself laughing all the time, obviously in the audience, but when I'm on stage performing as well, and I know what's coming, and it's still sometimes just too funny for me. So anyways, I, I thought that was remarkable that you maintain your face, because it does make it that much funnier that you're like taking all of this seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's important. I mean, when you're, when you're doing a thing at TED, I mean, David knows, it's like, gotta, gotta, you know, you gotta do your thing. Got to do it. It's Ted. It's your, you know, Eminem. It's one shot. It's Ted, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, I also wanted to talk about, I, I found something, David, that you were commenting on. Um, I think maybe you wrote an article for somebody, but you were saying that the internet will save civilization. And so I was curious, what websites are you looking at? Yeah. <laughs> no, this, is, this is actually my last book, which um, I originally wrote in 2010. 10. Um, but with the coronavirus, I ended up rewriting a big chunk of it. And we just put it back out. So oh. that book just came out last month. It's called The Safety Net. And essentially what I'm doing is looking at the collapse of civilizations. And, you know, you can look at all these civilizations, great brawny civilizations before us that have completely collapsed. And there's not even anything left of them except for scattered ruins and so on. So when historians look at these sorts of things, you can essentially 
lump the reasons for collapse into several different buckets. Um, pandemics is a big one. Great. Um, and tyranny is another one where government holds such firm control over agricultural practices or whatever it is that they end up, you know, collapsing their own society or carrying capacity, you know, just having too many people for too little food, stuff like that. There are all these reasons why civilizations collapse. And what I realized is that the essentially accidental invention of the internet changes all of our equations on this stuff. Essentially, every single civilization that's collapsed before us, if you look at it more carefully, you realize that we don't face that same problem anymore. Um, and, you know, we might have other sorts of problems, but it's completely changed the equation. It's probably the most important technology we've ever had. Just this vast communication system that blankets the planet like kudzu. So, um, you know, just when it comes to the speed of information, just the fact that we don't lose information anymore, we don't have to constantly reinvent things, which has characterized history. There's been amnesia all throughout history. Every great invention has been invented multiple times, had to be rediscovered, like something like vaccination as an example, or inoculation. Um, wow. Got invented in six different places at six different times. And so, uh, you know, now information travels instantly. Um, we now have the capacity for the first time to educate the whole planet, which was which really would have been unthinkable 30 years ago, pre-internet. Right. You know, any kid anywhere in the world can have access to the best. I can have access to TED Talks and, you know, hear the person who's the expert in whatever give, you know, their best talk ever, their M&M moment, uh, you know, 15 <laughs> minutes of education, rather than being stuck in whatever homeroom you happen to be growing up in. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's just, and, you know, just the, the, the speed of communication makes it so that when something like a tsunami happens, you know, you can warn everybody on the on the shore with a, you know, a, a network of ocean buoys that bob up and down and realize there's a tsunami coming and everyone can clear the way. And so, so you don't have to have 220,000 people die like you did with the Indian Ocean disaster in 2004 and stuff like that. So anyway, it turns out that despite all the things that we all gripe about about the Internet with, you know, overfull inboxes and fake news and whatever, this actually might be the invention that saves us. That's the argument of the wow. book. It's called the safety net. Ooh, Great. I sweet. love that. Safety net. Yeah, nice to have a positive outlook on that. And uh, before we leave the TED Talk too much, you were talking about expanding our umwelt, which I loved. And, and that was now five years ago. And so I was curious if there's been updates, if you're able to add to our sensory experience. Yeah, well, we're doing lots of we're doing lots of experiments. Um, we have just posted some stuff on the Neosensory website about adding infrared or ultraviolet light, you know, with Twitter streams, with with balance, with uh, stock market. I mentioned that in the TED Talk. Um, essentially feeding any kind of information into the brain so that you develop a perceptual experience of it. And what we've just recently done is with our wristband called Buzz, we've released a, a series of what are called SDKs, software development kits, so that people who program in different languages can can directly interface with the wristband. So let's say you want to feed in, you know, ultrasonic sound or whatever the thing is you want to do. You just, uh, mm. you know, type up a few lines of code and you feed it directly into the wristband. Wow. So, so, so it's stay like open tuned. source software now. Exactly. Exactly. So anyone can try to build their own uh, what what we call qualia, you know, a, a, a private, subjective, internal experience of something. And I think the next few years are going to be a time when we really find out what what humans are capable of, and we're going to see all kinds of unexpected stuff. So um, I'm 
Wow. Yeah, I think, you know, five years from now, ask me this question again and we'll have, we'll maybe be in a different kind of situation than we are now. Deal. Well, yeah, hopefully we'll be in person for the, for the, yeah, for that right. interview. Oh that's man, right. that'd be cool. Wouldn't that be cool? Can you imagine? I, yeah, I'm hard, really, yeah. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> so the brain, obviously like a lot of your work is centralized around the brain. And so, you know, I've had a couple different episodes with, uh, you know, neuroscientists of different elks. And so it, it seems like an ongoing theme is that the brain is very much a mystery. There's still a lot of it that we do not understand. And so I kind of wanted to put it to you because at least in my head, you're the brain guy. I hope you, I hope you take that title as a compliment. Um, what percent, if you could put a number on it for me, do you think that we actually understand? Well, of course, it's impossible to put a number because it would, it, it would imply that we actually know what 100% is. Yes. Um, yeah, that's awesome. But, okay, great. Trick question. Trick that's, question. That's correct. <laughs> but the general story is, you know, actually, I wrote the cover article in Discover Magazine in 2006, I think it was. I called it 10 Unsolved Mysteries of Neuroscience. And I went through these 10 big things that we do not understand in neuroscience. And the reason I mentioned that this article was so long ago is because now in 2020, we don't understand those questions any better than we did then. For example, what <laughs> is consciousness? How do you put together 86 billion pieces and parts and um, and have a private subjective experience of anything. Like in your computer, you know, your computer's doing all kinds of extraordinary stuff and it's manipulating zeros and ones. And we don't think that it has consciousness, it's just manipulating symbols. Mm -hmm. But the question is, when we look at the brain, we seem to just, it seems to just be all pieces and parts, just cells doing cell things. And yet we have the experience of, you know, the, the redness of red or the beauty of a sunset or the taste of cinnamon this kind of stuff, it's not clear how we get consciousness. Um, you know, my wife studies anesthesia. She's a neuroscientist also, and she's interested in this question of huh. how is it that you have, you know, these little molecules that can take away your consciousness. The rest of you still works fine, but it takes away consciousness. And then when the molecule wears off, then you're conscious again. And anyway, this is, this is one of the unsolved mysteries of neuroscience, but there are lots of them. Like, you know, why do brains sleep and dream? Why do we spend a third of our lives in this doppelganger state? You know, plenty of hypotheses about this stuff. We don't really know that. Um, what is intelligence? Um, what are what are emotions about? What, how do we, you know, if we think about the brain as an information processing system, it's not totally clear how to bring emotions into that. Um, anyway, lots and lots of unsolved mysteries. So, although I wow. can't put a percentage on it, um, I would say, you know, it's an open it's an open field for anyone to jump into and make big discoveries. We all the main. Nobel Prizes in neuroscience, I think, are ahead of us, not behind us. Yeah. Sounds like sounds like one percent. <laughs> I don't who knows. Yeah. yeah, I think that's I think that's actually correct. Thank you. I appreciate the confirmation, <laughs> Dr. Watts. So this this kind of does, at least for me, lead to like the West World, like some of the big West World questions of consciousness um and emotion and you know uh, artificial intelligence with the with the creators i guess did you guys debate consciousness or creating consciousness i mean how did like yeah. what, what were some of those big conversations i mean that's exactly what it was like an eight hour debate about this stuff about could a robot become sentient um what is free will do we have free will would a robot have it if you put together you know sophisticated pieces and parts would it have it what would it mean to get consciousness from pieces and parts? And the interesting part about these sorts of questions is, you know, exactly as you flagged, it's that we don't have a clear answer to these questions in neuroscience. So it's not as though we debated, 
with the end goal of saying, okay, you're right, you're wrong, you're right. Yeah, it's, instead, it's like we just we worked through the subtles and the intricacies of these questions and what it would mean. And I think the really cool part is, you know, my colleagues and I have been writing papers about this stuff for ever, but Hollywood can bring these questions to a place where suddenly they're on everybody's plate. And that's what's really lovely about turning something into a story. And, and one of the things that I really admire that the writers did is they have are still leaving the free will question sort of a, a mystery, exactly as it is with us humans, right? We feel mm-hmm. like we have free will, but when you look at the brain, it's all, you know, it's all just mechanical, chemical stuff happening, electrical, it's just, it's just signals moving around. As far as we can tell, there's no part of the brain that's not driven by other parts of the brain. So there's no place where you can sort of stick in the puff of God's breath or something. And so, <laughs> and yet we feel like we have free will, but it doesn't seem like we would when we look at the the stuff that we come at. So anyway, um, right. what the writers did is left the robots in exactly this situation. For those of you who watched Westworld, you know, the robots feel like, okay, look, I am finally free. I am not scripted anymore. But there's this scene in season two where one of the robots is saying this to the writer, saying how he's now free. And the writer uh, in, in the script, the guy who writes the, the narratives for the robots, starts saying word for word with the robot what the robot is saying, indicating that he, although the robot felt that he clearly had free will, he was just saying a pre-scripted line that had been programmed. And so yep. it was a, f- yeah, anyway, I, they're, they're walking a beautiful middle line on that exactly where we are stuck in science. Well, what about the two of you? You're, you're two of the most brilliant minds that we have on the planet, in my opinion. What, do we have free will? Where, where would you fall? Well, what's clear, what's clear is that if we have free will at all, it's not nearly as big as we think. So I devoted my book Incognito to this question, which is um, all the stuff that's running under the hood, your notion of what is beautiful, what is funny, what is this, that, like all this stuff we can prove, you know, it's all happening unconsciously. You don't have any access or awareness of most of the signals that drive your behavior. So if one even wanted to defend free will, you're already shoved into a very tiny corner. And then from there, you know, it's not clear how we would have free will mechanistically, although it should be noted that our science is still very young. And, you know, maybe maybe in 100 years, we'll understand some principle that we don't understand now about why we have some free will. But if we have it, it's it's a bit player in the play. So are you, uh, before Reggie answers, which I'm very curious to hear, but are you willing to be in that corner, you know, plant your flag and say, listen, I have no evidence of this. I cannot prove this. The science seem otherwise. However, I think I have free will. Oh, I have to say, as a scientist, I'm only interested in finding out what the truth is. In other words, I'm not interested in planting my flag in any particular spot. I just want to figure out what is the actual answer. Yeah. Okay. Regman? Free free will versus determinism. Yep. Uh, (laughs) What you got? (laughs) Well, uh, it's pretty easy to answer, first of all. Uh, (laughs) Second of all. No. um, Yeah, you know, I think about it all the time. You know, I think I kind of agree with what David's saying because essentially, like, we're kind of on rails in the sense that the only thing, I mean, consciousness is a weird thing, obviously, because it's strange to be talking about consciousness when you are the thing that you're talking about, experiencing that in real time as a feedback loop. Um, so mm-hmm. we're essentially, we're just like a walking input process output uh, synergistic sensory point. 
you know, and at least in my opinion, the thing that allows us to even like think about these things is the fact that we live in a binary reality for the most part. Um, and there has to be something to compare something, just like when you were saying about the hunt, we have to know what a hundred percent is. Like you, it's like, it's a, if you try to analyze a paradox, it's like a paradox can't exist and not exist at the same time. And yet it does. And yet it doesn't, you know, just, you can go down that rabbit hole forever, but because there's time and the, the perceived uh, progression of time and things get old, things change, there's entropy, all of those factors. That's kind of like our baseline in a way. That's kind of what we base most of the things that we understand uh, uh, about the physical universe uh, in science anyways. And so uh, the free will thing, I think it's like, there's, I like to think of it in the simulation uh, kind of aspect or zooming out away from it. Think of it as like, this is how I, this is how I view what free will is genuinely. It's like you have a, a template, a character template, like as, as who you are, the being that you're born into. And you have these tendencies that are both epigenetic, genetic, nurtured, learned, uh, various forms of circumstances that lead to form you as you. But the more that you become aware of that fact, uh, the more that you can change or alter uh, aspects of your life. So if you see yourself going down a certain path, if you become aware enough, you can actually see, oh, what did I do in the past? Oh, I see. And this is how I can, oh, okay. Actually, so I kind of view it as like, in a way, we're kind of playing ourselves in reality. Like we are kind of both the player right and the experiencer like we're the character and the person playing uh ourselves mm -hmm. and again it's based off of a binary concept because you need to be able to compare something to something else so in order for awareness to work you have to be aware of awareness so if you become aware of the fact that you're actually kind of in a way zoomed out looking at the map of yourself in life moving through it and that insight can kind of help guide you to a, a different outcome a different reality and and then of course I mix in a little bit of the multi-world theory, where you think of uh, all realities existing simultaneously, um, but we have the perceived notion of time, and therefore all the versions of yourself exist. You sitting an inch a little bit to your left, you holding a pencil instead of whatever you're holding right now, uh, all of those things, and then you extrapolate that uh, way down the line into some pretty crazy outcomes. But you can see having a larger uh, view of the map of reality and the possibilities, probabilities ahead of you based off of also your history and the past, you can kind of steer yourself. Again, this is just all, this is just my thing, but like you can steer yourself to the, you have a higher probability of steering yourself to an outcome that you would desire. And so I kind of extrapolate that. Uh, I will, I take that to myself. I, I apply that to myself, but then I also kind of apply it to humanity in general as a, as a collective organism and therefore think if I can change my life and head towards a reality that I think more favorable, then technically all the people around me also exist in that reality too, amongst the other gazillions of other realities. So I could, we could all ostensibly end up in a similar reality if we're conscious of the fact that we're going to that reality. I don't know what the hell I'm saying. Anyways, that's it. We'll, we'll take a break right now. We'll see you after these messages. <laughs> no, no, wait, wait, wait. Whoa, whoa. No. Tide pods are guaranteed to get your clothing. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go. Back to the show about science. <laughs> oh, man. Here's what I would say on that. The idea of getting feedback from the world and steering ourselves and so on. The interesting part is you don't actually need to impute free will 
to to mm. have that. In other words, let's just imagine we are essentially like robots, super sophisticated robots and so on. But we get input and feedback from all around us, from our actions. We, you know, we love things that taste good. We hate injustice. We, you know, are driven towards some things at certain ages and other things at other ages. And, you know, that means we take in feedback from the world and we adjust our behavior and we steer ourselves down certain paths. But we still could be doing it as as robots, as robots that respond to incentives. But the point is, if you rewound history 10,000 times, you would always turn left at that four. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Like they're they're essentially their their tendencies that if you if you look uh, at a larger picture, um, you're still within the margin of that tendency, like like where things are headed. Like if there's a thinking of it as like rails or something like that. I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's exactly what you're saying, but but that's uh, it triggers like it's interesting because like the the my thing is like the awareness, like what is awareness? Like it's it's weird. It is very strange to be talking about to be the thing that you're talking about. Do you know what I mean? Like, like to oh. have awareness of what we're talking about is really insane. I mean, it's maddening if you think about it too much. Is that consciousness? Yeah. The thing is, you know, some people propose that consciousness is memory in the sense that you say, wait, what was I just feeling? What did I just say? What was my, you know, you're constantly saying what just happened, what just happened. And what we're drawing on is actually a memory of what just happened rather than what we believe to be true, which is, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm experiencing all this in real time. Mm-hmm. We may not be. Hmm. You know, I did, I did a series of studies on this years ago where I had heard so many times, and I had had this experience myself, of time seeming to go into slow motion when people are in fear for their lives. And I had, as a child, fallen off of a roof, and it seemed to take a very long time to, to hit the ground. So I put this to the I did the only study that's ever been done on this. And, um, and it turns out, I'll skip all the details, it turns out that we can't actually see in slow motion. It's a trick of memory. What happens during an emergency is you lay down really high density memory, like everything in your brain says, whoa, write this down. Really important stuff is happening. And as a result, when you say, wait, what just happened? What just happened? What just happened? It seems like, wow, well, that must have taken a long time. It must have taken many seconds because I have so many memories to draw on there. Mm. And so there's plenty of reason to think that all we ever experience is the memory of things and not direct consciousness. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it comes down to that, the same analogy that I like to make when, you, when you're listening to music. You know, uh, a record is a great example. Uh, you know, you have all the information on this disc the entire album is 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 there but you're looking at the disc and you can't hear the music until you put it on the device that allows you to play it back and of course that device is a record player and as you place the needle on the record the needle is the point at which you that's the reference point for what is decompressing all of that information for you to experience as a listener but the weird thing about music is as soon as you lift the needle off it's just an inanimate object again um so so the idea of you know, experiencing something is a, is is an interesting question because, like in, in the analog of a record, it's like, well, you have what's about to happen and what has happened, and then there's the expectation of what you think it's going to be, and so you have the memory. Like if you've heard it before, you have the memory of like, oh, I love this album by Led Zeppelin, you know, and you put the record on there, but you really don't know what that is. You have like an idea from your memories and so forth, and you know, you're excited to hear it, and you're pretty sure you remember what it is, but. When you put that needle down and you hear that music, you're you're both remembering it, but kind of you know hearing it anew at the same time, but also have an expectation of what's about to occur. It's a like yeah. music to me in that way, in that regard, is very very 
interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's the only thing that just goes away. Like you just turn it off and it's, it's just gone. You're like, what, what, what? I was just in another world. What just happened? It's like, Oh, it's, yeah. it's gone. <laughs> oh, okay. We'll turn it back yeah, on. Why does it, there it is. <laughs> and why does it sound like it sucks when you remember it, that it was like, Oh, I remember this song being so cool. Yeah. And then you, you want to play it for your friend who's never heard it yeah. and they're not into it. And then all of a sudden it sounds like shit. <laughs> Yeah. What's that about? Well, that goes to show you the interpretation, right? Um, okay, so another issue I wanted to discuss was like preserving our minds. This is explored oh, no. in depth in Westworld. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to bring it up. It's okay. Um, like uploading our brains, essentially, right? Like either to the cloud or, or in Westworld to other bodies in order for us to become essentially immortal. Were there discussions about, you know, the ethical nature of that? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting because I think everyone who's thinking about these things right now isn't thinking too much about the ethics because there's actually an interesting bleed over with the idea of, you know, when you go into a hospital, does the hospital try to keep you alive? Yes, that's sort of the ethical thing for them to do. And so this discussion is just, you know, okay, what if you want to stay alive for a really long time? And presumably you pay programmers, you know, you pay Amazon or Google or whoever in 100 years from now to, to maintain the simulation of you. So I don't think there's that much of an ethical thing there. But the, the okay. real question is, would it be possible to replicate the brain in, you know, in silica and, um, and, you know, take all these zeros and ones and actually run a simulacrum of you uh, in a way that actually is, is just like you. And so one view of neuroscience is this really should be possible. Because as I said, it's all just pieces and parts doing extremely sophisticated things, but it should be possible. Um, it's a physical thing. It's in my it's, cranium. Exactly, exactly. And by the way, you probably need to include a lot of the rest of the body or at least a simulation of it, like, you know, hormones mm. coming from your adrenal gland and you know, all kinds of other things, go signals from your gut and so on. But Yeah, I'll throw that in. Yeah, throw that in. It can be summarized and made compressed. But the, um, but the issue is, yeah, w w will it work? We, we don't really know until we try, until we get the technology in 50 or 100 years and we're able to actually try replicating a brain and then we can like, you know, upload it and say, hey, uh, hey, Reggie, can, can you hear us? Like, how, how are you feeling oh. in there? And if you, if you say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a little hungry, I'm cold, whatever, then, you know, but essentially we'll never exactly know if it is conscious. All we'll ever know is, okay, well, it sounds like Reggie. It sounds like the kind of thing he would say. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we know. <laughs> the interesting part is that is one of the questions in neuroscience where it seems like we're on a pretty straightforward path to get there, which is to say it might not happen in our lifetimes, but the idea of getting finer and finer resolution to be able to copy the structure of the brain and run it all on a computer, you know, given Moore's law and so on, that seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, the, the question then becomes like, well, you know, if you're able to do this, and I guess it's, I guess it doesn't matter. And I mean, I guess it's similar to our, our, our conundrum now, or the question now about like, well, what is consciousness, you know, because if you're able to copy consciousness into onto a computer or into an Android, or, you know, into a fully simulated system, system, humanoid system, like, it, there's no way to yeah exactly like there's no way to prove like well what is conscious is conscious is consciousness i mean you alluded to like you know feedback from the gut and there's like you know the whole human body functions uh in a way to support consciousness but like is what is, is consciousness just a mind and what is a mind and, and is it the mind and the body is is me like what i am now and all the molecules that compose all the organs and the tissue that i am now or is it something that only resides in 
whatever the thinking apparatus, the awareness apparatus is of being alive. It's it's an interesting question because, and then you have like you know shows like like Westworld and uh, or even uh, Altered Carbon. You know, it's you just swapping swapping bodies all day long. You know, like like I don't the implications, the psychosis that would be a, that you would have to endure looking in the mirror and not looking like what you remember yourself as and then having to deal with that uh or deal with the fact that oh my body's dead but now i'm a copy of myself in another form um that's a whole nother batch of worms <laughs> i mean i feel like i could get over that fairly quickly like five ten minutes if i look in the mirror <laughs> and now i'm like super jacked and i have a turkey sandwich be like all right well you know, I now, guess you're right. now this is the thing yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's okay. I didn't. I didn't even think of it that way. <laughs> I, I, I agree that that would be a very tough thing because so much of who we are just has to do with basic things like what we look like and how the rest of the world treats us and so on. Um, if okay. suddenly you found yourself in the shoes of the opposite gender, a different nationality, uh, much shorter, or much taller. Um, much heavier or much skinnier. I, I can imagine that who you even think yourself to be and how you act as a result might change pretty pretty radically in just a few moments. Mm, yeah. So if you found yourself the jacked guy, <laughs> would you start walking around having more confidence when you're in a you know bar and you're talking to somebody, or you start acting like more of a jerk to people who are smaller than you or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Just would definitely be more of a jerk. <laughs> be awesome. Right. <laughs> this is the thing. I mean, this goes back to what Reggie was saying before about how we have our own story. A lot of our own story comes about just from looking in the mirror and thinking about what our own story is supposed to be given what we look like. And of course, how other people mm -hmm. react to it. Essentially, everyone's holding up mirrors to us. And um, yeah. you know, we find those people among whom we are popular and those people among whom we are not. And yeah. Okay. So how about improving what we already have? I know we've yeah. talked about, you know, somewhat of, you know, the sensory experience and how our brain can actually interpret data in many different ways and make sense of it, which is probably what it's best at. But do you have any other, you have an app, is that correct? Called Brain Check that has something to do with like keeping track of our brain health. Um, but beyond that, I, I wanted to also just, yeah, if you have any recommendations, I mean, people should read more, they should meditate, they should take shrooms every morning. I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I mean, here's what I'd say. Well, so this, by the way, is the topic of my next book, which comes out in August of 2020. Um, Ooh, teaser. Yeah, yeah, it's called Live Wired. And it's about brain plasticity. It's about how the brain is constantly reconfiguring itself. And the right way to think about the brain is not like a map of okay, here's the pieces and parts that make up the brain and so on. But instead, it's about how the whole algorithm is interacting, how the system is rewriting its circuitry on the fly every moment of your life, writing down new memories, you have new experiences and so on. That's, that is to me where the, where the magic of the brain is rather than pointing to the anatomical parts. So here, here's the simple answer to the question you posed, which is the most important thing to do for the brain is constantly seek novelty and challenge yourself. So, you know, in other words, as soon as you find something that you're good at, quit that and do something you're bad at and climbing <laughs> Whoa, up that that's curve. That's the opposite of what I do, David. <laughs> I like things I'm good at. Right. This is what the, this is the opposite of what pretty much everyone does. And by the way, when people retire, <laughs> this is the worst thing that can happen to their brains because, you know, their world shrinks. They sit on the couch, they watch Jerry Springer or whatever they're doing and, and everything shrinks. They're no longer challenging themselves. It's the, it's the single most important lesson that emerges from neuroscience, I think, is uh, in wow. terms of how we can lead our lives um, is constantly take advantage of the fact that this is a system that wants to reconfigure and do new things. And it's good at doing that. 
And by the way, I think that is the silver lining to this stupid coronavirus is that everybody has been put into a position where the normal rules of the world don't apply. And we've all been forced to be creative in various ways and figure out new ways of doing things. And right. I know in my, you know, I have two companies, I have BrainCheck, as you mentioned, and Neosensory. And with both of them, everybody's just doing stuff differently than they used to. Um, mm -hmm. So I think this is really the, right. the greatest thing that's come out of this. And how many interns do you have working for you that are writing all these books? <laughs> Zero. This is funny. I get asked this sometimes, but... Uh, it just seems yeah, like I, a lot I, of books, I, man. I don't know. I'm not, not saying you're a fishy, man. A little fishy. <laughs> a little fishy. Thank you. Yeah, well, each book, each book takes me about eight years, but you know, I write them oh, in parallel. Geez. I always have multiple what? projects going on in parallel. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's crazy. So you're just writing... How many books are you writing simultaneously then? It's about five, five in any given time. Man, oh. that's so cool. That, that, that means that you're a natural because that's not like, that's not like, it's not like <laughs> something goes like, hey, you know what I, uh, what I think I should do structurally uh, for my life? <laughs> right, like, five. That's just a, you're like, you got to want to do that. I mean, that's just, you know. I'll tell you. I, t I do feel like I, I do feel like I've hit my resonance frequency on that. But the thing is, it's actually a trick <laughs> that I, that I, do because at any given moment I have, let's say, five different buckets. And whenever I have a really good idea about something, there's always a place to put it. So not not all my writer friends write this way. A lot of people like to start at page one and work their way through a single book. I can't work that way. I love having the, the you know, it's like a lazy Susan where I spin it and I can put stuff down exactly where I need to. Wow. wow that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I I wanted to say that that uh, that novelty thing that you're talking about, like constantly challenging and so forth. It's kind of the why I love improvisation so much um, mm -hmm. because you can find you can and uh, and why I tend to steer. Well, I guess why I don't respond as well to traditional improvisational structures like uh, Del Close style uh, improv, uh, those types of methods of improv. Because to me, mm -hmm. I'm like, well, improv's improv. You know, it should be, <laughs> it should like start from nothing and then something is generated. Um, and I, so I feel very uncomfortable. I mean, I love watching people who have studied under these methods and they're, they're just, you know, killing it on stage. It's amazing. But I'm interested in putting myself in the most chaotic, uncomfortable uh, situations uh, and have the pressure of having to figure out how to make something out of it. You know, and you can still obviously get into your own self technique patterns, but uh, it's definitely helpful for me. I, I, I try to use that technique when I feel like I'm being stagnant in like just cyclical behavior, especially nowadays because of, you know, having to stay at home mostly. Um, I, every day I'm like, okay, I'm getting out. I'm sleeping on the other side of my bed tonight. I am, uh, you know, I'm going to brush my teeth with uh, my right hand instead of my left hand. Uh, I'm going to mm -hmm. try when I get that weird thought in my head, I'm going to do it immediately um, instead of passing by the snack thing. on glass. Yeah, I'm going to snack on glass. I'm going to take a knife and, you know, try to throw it at a tree. And, and if it misses and hits yeah. somebody, I'll claim responsibility. Like those types of things. It's um, the right thing to do. Yeah, it's the, only, it's the right thing to do. But, you know, but it, but it reminds me, like, that is the kind of thing. Like, And, and I don't, have you heard of Neurohacker? No, Anybody? I don't know. Anybody? Okay, I'll see you guys later. No, bye, um, bye. <laughs> bye guys. Uh, no, Neurohacker is uh, Neurohacker Collective. I think is what they're called. They they have these uh, uh, plas plasticity based nutritional cognitive support, whatever you want to call it, uh, nootropics, and uh, they uh, have uh, some a few different products. But uh, I, I love that there are companies that are thinking about 
the things that are required for brain health as a nutritional support because the brain is structured completely like it's not the same thing as the body where you have like protein and you have your amino acids it it, it structures itself with different types of nutrients and so it's its own system the brain is and so uh you know and there are diets that you know that neuroscientists i forget her name but she she created a uh, she wrote a book about nutrition of brain science in direct correspondence to her family's uh, genetic pre predisposition with cognitive gen uh, degenerative diseases um, and has kind of formulated these diets that may support uh, cognitive function and so forth. But um, as a nutritional avenue to this, aside from actual exercises that you perform, I just think it's a it's something to constantly be aware of because it's fun to maximize your brain power. T totally right. Uh, the nutrition thing is still that's still uh, up in the air. <laughs> work, yeah, that's still work in progress. And there's no there is no silver bullet yet, despite no. the number of books and websites and so on. But you're exactly right that challenging your brain is is exactly the way to go. And my prediction would be, Reggie, that you will never get something like Alzheimer's precisely because you are constantly challenging your brain. Um, so if I'm if wow. I'm right in this prediction, then you can tell me in 40 years. And if I'm wrong, then you won't perhaps remember that I made the prediction. <laughs> I won't remember who you are. <laughs> That's a good wager. It's a safe What bet. is David? What, what are you? <laughs> Boy, he was right uh, on the money, wasn't he? <laughs> um, okay, awesome. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, I was going to ask for silver bullets. I mean, but but what about, okay, like speed round here. Do you drink coffee, David? I do. Yeah, I love it. Uh, love it. And, you know, that is one of those, that is one of those things in neuroscience where it constantly goes back and forth. You know, one year it's like coffee is great for the brain. The next year it's not so great. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah, I'm yeah. just interested in what you're doing. You're my guy, David. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the main thing, the main thing, I mean, I would say exactly like Reggie is just just constantly finding new ways. What I try to do is drive a different route home from work every day when nice. I'm able to do that. Oh, and, uh, my God. I'm yeah. living so wrong, man. I, I rely on my <laughs> GPS. I feel like a schmuck. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> you tough, know isn't it? Yeah, you know what? I just realized that's a great idea for an app. We should build an anti-GPS that always oh sends God. you on a different route. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be yeah, great. Like like uh it would be well it'd be cool like functionality to to a traditional gps program right you just like you put yeah. it into a randomizing mode exactly. <laughs> yeah you know? it's like yeah. you know what this isn't going to be the fastest way home but you'll get there yeah yes. you'll get there but it'll be different i mean i thought i think that all the time you know i live in uh well i'm right now i'm in montana in my the hometown that i grew up in great falls and it's basically a grid it's very you know pretty basic but I just realized the other day, like, I've been kind of doing these intuitive impulses to, like, just take a different street or whatever. And I just realized that I probably only have driven down maybe, like, 40% of the streets in, in my town. And even though it's a tiny town, well, not tiny, but it's small for, you know, 64,000 people, it's, which is built like a grid. It's really strange that sometimes I'll drive down the street and I'll be like, I've never driven down this street. This is crazy. Wow. Yeah. Well, you heard it here, guys. Take random streets in your neighborhood get lost figure out how to get back uh <laughs> i don't know what take up chess learn a language challenge yep. yourself yep. yes play uh, chess in german yeah <laughs> until you get it. good at it and then do something different yeah, yeah and then do something yeah, once different you're, once you're good at it and it's really fun yeah stop yep yes. yep completely <laughs> stop yeah, I completely stop and then become a pilot. And then, <laughs> then, and then yeah. when you get good at flying and landing, yeah. start driving a boat. Yeah, start driving a boat and then get into furniture building. 
So, I mean, it's like, that's my prescription. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. And I mean, it's great that you're writing all these books, but I got to say, David, it's kind of uh, hypocritical because you're already really good at writing books. So I that know is, that is true. You're going to have to figure out something else. man. Exactly right. <laughs> it's kind of exactly not your right. thing anymore, dude. <laughs> you know what? I got to tell you, I, there, there's actually a deeper worry that I have about writing books, which is I, right, I've trained my whole life writing books and I feel like I'm really good at it now, but I don't know if books are going to exist in 10 or 20 years. Ooh. I feel like, oh man. I, I, I hope you're right. What do you think will replace it? Just media? No, I don't uh, you know, just whatever the next YouTube is and the next podcast and the next so-and-so. Right. I, I mean, it's a fear that I have like, deep down. There's nothing it's, like, uh, I, they, they may not be, you know, selling as many. I, I could see that going down for sure. But that feeling of just, you know, going outside and sitting on a chair without anything else but a book is uh, is like nothing else. That's irreplaceable. I agree. I agree. I just wonder the degree to which we are of a previous generation. Uh, oh, man. It, it's my, That's true. Look, let's say you were really good at building cathedrals some hundreds of years ago. <laughs> in Jaya, and at some point, you're the last cathedral builder. So, yeah. Oh, but, man. I, I guess it's true. But it's, uh, I don't know. It's some, so, I mean, it's an, in, it's an instinct, right? It's an instinct to draw pictures. You know, essentially, that's what, mm. that's what letters are. They're just pictures. They're symbols. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so... It's, it is, I mean, the good thing, the hope that I have is that it is pretty rooted in some pretty basic human stuff, you know, uh, books, because they seem to yeah. be still selling a ton of books. Um, and a lot of my young friends are always like, I'm reading this book right now, you know, and I feel bad because I haven't read a book since 1998. But like, <laughs> but, but, my, but my young friends are like, I just read that. Have you read this? I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't read books. I'm really sorry. But you got to challenge uh, your brain, Reg. I know. Yeah. I am going to read. I am reading a book. I'm reading the Tao Te Ching right now, which is oh, that one's great. Love it's, that book. It's not a book per se. It's just more like really cool stuff to think about. But yeah, but I will read. You know what? I will say this. I will read uh, a David book. Nice. It, Same. I think, I think I'm going to do. We can that. have a David book club, and honestly, oh. it'll last us like the whole year. Oh, the David book club. <laughs> That's so cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. We can read in. one after the other. Talk about it. Have discussions, and yeah. if seemingly. Every few months, there's going to be like five more of these books out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It'll never stop. Um, Listen, I could talk to you both forever. I hope that we do this again sometime. David, the the latest book is The Safety Net. Is that correct? Um, That's right. Although Live Wired is coming out in a month and a half. Yeah, nice. of course. And actually, it's getting nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. That's my goodness, my well, I'll make sure you get that, man. The right, book that hasn't cool. come out yet? Yeah. Wow. It's going to get it. It's going to get it. <laughs> yeah, they already just assume, like, listen, we haven't read a lick of this, but we're giving it the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the publisher, yes, yes. The publishers this, this stuff a year in advance, yeah. Oh, that's awesome, oh, man. Well, c- congratulations, man. I hope you do Thanks. get that. That would be awesome. Yeah, Thanks. super congrats, um, especially since uh, it's up to Reggie and he just announced that he's giving it to you, so that's phenomenal. That's you. confirmed. Thanks, I'm going to give it to you. He didn't even think about it. It was weird. I, I didn't have to. David's, David's a good guy. I met him in Sydney and he's awesome. <laughs> You're in the right place. Um, okay, awesome. So yeah, everybody go out, join our David Book Club, get all these books. And uh, and Reg, is there something you want to tell people about? Uh, I don't know. Have them tune into? Uh, yeah, I have a, a new book about the, the wonders of neuroscience coming out uh, called Collective Digestive. It'll be out on Harper. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, uh, I, it's Random House, but like the most random. Yeah. No. Um, I, I, uh, to enhance people's brains. It's a yeah, super totally, random house. Totally. Keep it random. 
keep it plastic. Um, so no, I have uh, my app, WhatsApp. Uh, it's not a yep. joke. It's real app. W a t t s a p p, and uh, you can get that on iOS. Uh, and it has all my fun stuff on it. There's like all sorts of cute things. It's free. And there's a store where I sell my old headphones and electronics for cheap. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's coming out. It's being uh, con- uh, a version of it for Android is being uh, made and should be out in early September. And uh, and then I'll be in the new uh, what's it called? Square Square Jaw Punk Sponge Pants. What is it? Again? Yeah, it's called Square Jaw Sponge Pants. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> yeah, so so I did a voice in the Square Jaw Sponge Pants movie coming out. Would you be... get? Is that like? Is that a copyrighted thing? I feel like you can get away with actually making Square Jaw Sponge Pants. It's so hard to say, by the way. <laughs> I hope so. I'm gonna make it now. Um, yeah. Oh. Uh, uh, well, I'm in that. I'm in that, and uh, I think I think that's all of the. I think that's all the upcoming stuff. Yeah. So. Great. Okay. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, thank you both. Bye bye. Till next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Looking forward to Thanks, next time. Guys. Yeah. Next time's gonna be awesome. <laughs> the greatest summer ever. We, did you know the next time already won the Pulitzer Prize? No. <laughs> yes. It's true. That's so crazy. Oh my god. I just I just love the idea that David, that David just has like eight thousand books coming out like every week. It's, like, it's, like a- it's actually it's a problem because he doesn't know how to promote or which one to promote. They're just constantly coming out. They, they just give you a general Pulitzer Prize just like for everything. We assume one of these is a classic. <laughs> Oh, so dumb. I love it. Uh, yeah, that's great. Oh, man. Bad Science is a Seeker podcast produced by Emily Feld and me, Ethan Edinburgh. Our editor is Lucas Bollinger, and our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. Shout out to EJ and Kate. And the executive producer and my personal Anthony Hopkins, I don't know what that means. I got to think about that. It feels right is Brett Kushner. Oh, follow us on Instagram at BadSciencePod. If there's a movie you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, feel free to email at BadScienceAtSeeker.com. That's BadScienceAtSeeker.com. And please leave us an iTunes review. It does help. It makes sure people know about the podcast, which we really appreciate. Thanks for listening. Bye.